Um, we have been, over the past number of weeks, thinking about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. We've talked about uh, the sovereignty of God and the incarnation. We've talked about our need for God to take on human flesh. We've talked about the Old Testament covenants, which are blueprints of the incarnation. We've talked about the genealogies of the incarnation and the way that the incarnation of the Son of God provided redemption for us. And now with Christmas right around the corner, it's time to talk about Emmanuel. It's time to talk about God with us. And to recognize that Emmanuel is not a an honorary title. It's a descriptive phrase. God literally took on human flesh to join with us. I want to make sure that we have a, a solid understanding as to who our God is. We, we, as often as, as we preach, we don't often take that and summarize it into a, a, an understanding of God himself. This is from the... the uh, Chapter 2 of the London Baptist Confession, we've, we've got, uh, no, we don't have any more over there. So I need to order some. We've got one over there, but everybody should have this in your, your bulletin. Chapter 2 of the London Baptist Confession is titled, God and the Holy Trinity. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, no parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, and completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him, and to him. He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them, for them, or upon them as he pleases. In his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It does not depend upon any creature. So for him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. 
He is absolutely holy in all his plans, in all his works, and in all his commands. Angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the creator and whatever else he is pleased to require of them. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relationship, relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. The problem, simply enough, is how can we have anything to do with this God? How can creatures who are flesh and blood have anything to do with God, who is pure spirit, invisible, without parts or emotions, dwelling in unapproachable light, who by his very nature is incomprehensible? How can sinners approach a holy God? How can rebels ever love God or want to worship him or know him? There are a variety of human answers to this. Many of those answers, of course, in our time are simply to deny that God exists at all. Uh, some answers make God distant, apathetic, and uncaring, capricious, and arbitrary. And some just make God a big version of ourselves. Just a big version of ourselves. Just a big person. I heard somebody the other day refer to the man upstairs as though God is just a man who somehow got higher. That's simply not true. He is unique in every way. Moses prayed in Exodus chapter 33, show me your glory. Now God had called Moses up onto Mount Sinai and in Exodus chapter 20, he gives him the Ten Commandments. He gives him extended instructions for the building of the tabernacle in great detail and then is interrupted by the people of Israel down on the plain below who had demanded that Aaron create the, the golden calf, a god for them to worship. Moses went down uh, and, and 3,000 Israelites died that day under the judgment of God. And then God called Moses back up on the mount. He said, prepare two new tablets. I'll write the law. Moses went back up. God wrote the law. They had some more words, including God saying to Moses, you take this people and you go ahead to the promised land and I'll meet you there. If I go with you, I'll kill you. And Moses said, if you're not going to come with us, don't send us. And God didn't allow his mind to be changed because he was being angry or upset. He wanted Moses to act as a mediator. And Moses, for the first time, positioned himself as a mediator for sinners before God. And then Moses says in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, 
show me your glory. And God says in verse 20, no. No one can see my face and live. See, we've got that problem of how do we come to God? Left on our own, nobody wants to know God as he is. We want God as we want him to be. We want God as we imagine him to be. Even those to to whom he first spoke could not see him as he truly was and survive the experience. But Yahweh had a purpose in mind. It's not plan A, it's not plan B, it's not plan C. I said a week or two ago, I don't even like the idea of plan A because it implies that there's more plans to follow. There are no plans to follow. This was God's intention the entire time. His intention was incarnation. Before we get to the incarnation, his plan was incarnation. So God, through history, has communicated to us in three ways. The first way is illustration. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. I don't know if you caught that, but throughout the entire universe the heavens, there's only one God. And the entire universe, the vault of the universe, the stars, the planets, the moons, everything in it declares the glory of that one singular God. Paul picks up that theme in Romans chapter 1 and says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely, specifically, His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, Romans 1.20. And in fact, he goes on to say that that revelation, that illustration is so clear about who God is that those who refuse to worship him have no excuse. They don't need any further communication than the universe itself. But the universe itself is simply a a, uh, an illustration of who God is. God created, created man in his image and he made it us, he made it us, that's the old English past tense, he made us to be uh, artistic in various degrees. Uh, some are mildly artistic, some are tremendously gifted. And one of the things that we know from the history of art is artists put themselves into what they do. It's simply inevitable. Uh, Perhaps the the most peaceful classical composer I know of is is Johann Sebastian Bach. He was a committed Christian. I think I read 75% of his works were specifically for church music. At one point, because of the church calendar, they were, they were performing 60 cantatas a year. And for three years in a row, he wrote a new one every week. And you can hear Bach's faith in what he did. You look at other artists, and you hear the disturbances within their natures, within their souls. They can't help that either. We're created in the image of God. God has illustrated who he is and what he has made. The second way that God has communicated is through spoken communication, through 
through the words of the prophets and mainly through the scriptures. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago God spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Putting it differently, it means God spoke throughout history to chosen recipients through chosen representatives in, a, in many different episodes and in a variety of ways. He spoke to Adam face to face. He spoke to Abraham, I think, at least sometimes face to face. Others had dreams. Others had visions or prophets were sent. Throughout this time of revelation, beginning with with Adam and really continuing through the, the end of the New Testament with the book of Revelation, if you'll take the time to read that, you'll find that God spoke with the same tone of voice, the same truth. The same attitude, the same mercy, the same righteousness, the same kindness, the same judgment towards sin, the same grace. He's not completely outraged and out of control in, in one Old Testament book and then a complete pushover in another Old Testament book. And by the way, that's, that's, that commonality is not due to the translators. That's due to the, the original Hebrew and Greek texts. They simply translate that way. But speaking through illustration wasn't enough, and speaking through communication and in scripture wasn't enough. And so God spoke not only through illustration and communication, but through incarnation. That took place in Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom the Father appointed the heir of all things, through whom also God made the worlds. It says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That means Jesus is the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. Not a two-dimensional picture, but the exact representation. And Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He can do that because he is God. He is Yahweh. In the Gospel of John, if you want to turn there, John begins with these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In that, John deliberately draws our attention back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so I want to show you this slide Penny will bring up, that we have time, we have a when, and we have a who, and we have a what. The when is in the beginning, and it's the same in Genesis, and it's the same in John 1.1. The who in Genesis is in the beginning God. The who in John takes more explanation because of what John is establishing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Remember, what we believe is not that there are three gods, but there is one God who is three persons. How does that work? Nobody knows. If you can explain God, is he God? If you and I, simply as creatures, even without sin, if we could explain God, would, we be, would he be God? No. No. 
And especially our sin and rebellion blinds us to who he is. So the time is in the beginning, the who is God, and the word, what's the what? Verse 3 of John, in, er, in Genesis, it's in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1.3, it says, all things came into being through him, through the word. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Good definitions always provide a positive and a negative. It tells us what something is and what something isn't. And so we have what Jesus is. All things came into being through him. And we have the negative. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. There are those who believe that Jesus is a created being. If that's true, then he came into being. But what John writes is, apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. So he can't have come into being because all things came into being through him. If somebody wants to say he made himself, that just gets into absurdity. And I know that the Trinity sounds a little bit odd, but at least we can see that in Scripture. So the word of God is eternal and living. He was in the beginning with, with God. We see that he has perfect fellowship with God. In verse 1, the word was with God. That, that phrase with God implies a face-to-face -face intimacy and equality. Not that there's God, and then at some later point, there's the word, but that there's God and the word. If I could put it this way without getting too philosophical, God is a speaking God. Are we to think that he just kept his mouth shut for a billion, trillion eternities and then decided to speak? No. God has always expressed himself, and Jesus Christ is the perfect full expression of who he is. And the word is God by nature. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God by nature, by essence. And John 1.3 leaves us no other option but to believe that Jesus Christ is Yahweh God the creator. All things came into being through him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the word of God, all things came into being through the word of God. That's what scripture says. Now, I talk all the time. I talk for a living. And when I talk, air passing through my voice box uh, is causes my, my vocal cords to vibrate, and it makes sounds, and I know how to control those sounds so that they're repeatable. And then that, that sound wave travels through the air. You might think it's instant, but it's not. It takes time, even though it's a tiny bit of time. And you hear the words. Your, your eardrums pick, pick up those words, or your hearing aid picks up the words and passes it to the eardrum and into the inner ear, and your brain deciphers it into understandable ideas. As soon as I've said the word, it's gone. As soon as you've heard the word, it's gone. So for you and I, words are, are like leaves. We say them and they drop to the ground. But the word of God, the living word of God exists eternally. Having been spoken, he will never be unspoken. And he continues to speak. 
If all of that is confusing to you, just look at verse 14. Because the eternal word, who is God himself, became flesh. It's from the Latin Vulgate that we get the idea of incarnation. Carne is the Latin word for flesh, and that's what it says here. It literally says the word was incarnated. God took on human flesh without ceasing to be God. And John writes, he dwelt among us. He's speaking of himself and his fellow apostles and the others at that time. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, lifting it back up to Jesus' deity, full of grace and truth. Now here's another remarkable connection for you. In Exodus 33, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, can't. No one can see my face and live. But God says to Moses, this is what I will do. I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand and I'll pass by. And after I've passed by, I'll remove my hand so that you can see my hind parts. And before God passed by, he declared himself. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Abounding in loving kindness and truth corresponds to full of grace and truth in John 1.14. How much clearer does the scripture need to be to say this Jesus is God in human flesh? The same God. John then opens his first letter, 1 John, with a reference to this historical event. What was from the beginning, going back to Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and the idea there is gazing upon or studying, being intent on, and touched, touched with our hands concerning the word of life, concerning the eternal word who is life to us. The word of life who is with God and was himself God by nature became flesh. God became a man. John and the other apostles heard him. They saw him. They gazed upon him and studied him. And they, and they touched him. They touched him. God, who is pure spirit, who is invisible, who is incomprehensible, bent low so that we could understand. And John says that in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, if you have a King James version or a new King James, you'll have only begotten son, which makes infinitely more sense than only begotten God. How can God be, be begotten? God isn't begotten. There's one God. He's eternal. He's unchanging. He can't be begotten. And so in the 4th or 5th century, some scribe decided, I think it's around the 4th or 5th century, some scribe decided, you know what? I'm, I'm having to, to answer too many questions about what only begotten God means. Let's just make an only begotten son. That's true. 
Jesus is the only begotten son of God. That's true. The alternative is that somebody changed only begotten son to only begotten God. And then why? Well, what John is doing is telling us in that phrase, only begotten God, that Jesus Christ is fully human, begotten, and fully divine. God has taken on human flesh. God is pure spirit and invisible, so we can't see him. We are sinners and unable to approach him. We are rebels and we don't want him. But Jesus has explained him to us. God's answer to our problem, how can flesh and blood Creatures know and comprehend God. How can sinners approach God? How can hostile rebels ever love God? God's answer was for his own son, for his eternal word, the perfect expression of all God is to become a man. As we bring this home, I want to remind you of Philip's question to Jesus the night of his arrest. After the Last Supper, after Jesus had washed their feet, after he comforted them, you believe in God, believe also in me. The disciple Philip asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. That's what we want. We want to know our God. We want to know our creator. We want to know the one who loves us. We want to know the one who has promised to redeem us. Jesus answers him, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't recognize me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's not in some poetic term. That's a one-for-one correspondence because Jesus came to explain God to those who can't see him. If you want to know what God the Father is like, Open your Bible and look at the Lord Jesus. Now, certainly the apostles and and the others at the time had an advantage we don't have. They could actually see Jesus. They knew when Jesus came in the room, he made sounds. They could hear the rustling of his robe as he walked by. They could smell whatever he smelled like. They knew the tone of his voice. They knew his laughter. They knew his touch. They knew that he was yea higher, yea higher. I don't know how higher, yea wider, yea wider. We don't know how wide, but they knew all of that. After Jesus was raised from the dead, Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other guy said, yeah, let's go fishing. So they're all out in the boat at Galilee. They're off the shore at Capernaum and they see somebody on the shore. And John, the youngest, maybe he's got the best eyes, says, it's the Lord. They recognized him. He wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. He had shape and form and weight and size. And Jesus shows us what God is like. Taking it back to Exodus 34. God describes himself 
as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and at the same time not leaving the guilty unpunished, which means he doesn't simply ignore iniquity, transgression, and sin, but deals with them in perfect justice. The world hates Jesus because one day he will stand in judgment over it. All who truly believe in him and confess him as their Lord and Savior, Jesus is the Savior for all who for all. He lived in perfect righteousness for us. He died as a perfect substitute on the cross. He rose from the dead and he gives us his eternal, powerful, unending life. And we know what God is like because he took on flesh to show us. And while we don't see Jesus now, we love him. And we have as the outcome of our faith, eternal life, Peter says. So we wait for him now, but not as abandoned orphans. He comforts us in our grief. He pities us in our weakness and our fear. And he strengthens us to worship and serve him. Father, we give you thanks for your graciousness to us and your kindness to us. And we ask, Lord, that this day as we contemplate the birth of our Savior, that you would fill us with faith, fill us with joy in who he is and what he came to do and perfectly accomplished. And we give you all the glory. Amen.